Hello, my name is Maha Khan Phillips, and I am the editor of Professional Investor at CFA UK. Welcome to the latest episode of the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is a show for investment professionals, focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Rick Damasio, the Chief Executive of Analytics. We're going to be talking about innovations in behavioral finance, how behavioral analysis has changed the investment landscape, and how it will continue to do so going forward. For those of you who don't know Rick, a bit of background before we begin. Rick founded Analytics in 1998 to focus on understanding how fund managers generate alpha. The firm empirically analyzes data to identify and benchmark investment scale on behalf of institutional investors and others. For over 22 years, it has been compiling the largest private database of institutional investor transactions globally. Welcome, Rick. We're delighted to have you. Oh, thank you, Maha. Looking forward to it. Can I just start by asking you how you became involved in the world of behavioral analysis? Because it's interesting, your background, you've held a variety of roles. You were CIO of the British Coal Pension Fund, your portfolio manager at Goldman Sachs Asset Management and Olympus Capital. So what drew you to behavioral analysis as an area of focus? Well, the answer is, is this 20 years of running money and running teams of PMs. And, and I suppose the truth of the matter is, is that uh, latterly, I had 26 PMs reporting to me, and you know, and every month we'd do review meetings where we'd hear the stories and review performance. But I really didn't have any sense of where the skeletons were or what was actually happening in the portfolio. I had to very much rely on what I was being told. And then over the years, you know, running analytics and becoming more familiar with the behavioral finance literature, I found that. I was smiling to myself to the thought that if the um, behavioral finance academics had been listening in on those meetings, they would almost certainly have been chuckling to themselves because what they would have been hearing is all the things that they write about. <laughs> so they would have been thinking about the sort of confirmation bias where basically the PMs would be looking for stories to justify the good decisions were pure genius and pure skill. And then they would be looking for stories to explain that the bad decisions were really just bad luck and, um, and the, that it really had nothing to do with them. Of course. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, the, the famous disposition effect, you know, where basically we all did it and um, including myself, you know, that you would run your winners and also you'd sell your winners and, and, and run the losers, which was the complete opposite of what you should do and what the Americans call as chopping the flowers and watering the weeds, which I think is a great phrase. So, you know, they would have recognized... fantastic expression, chopping the flowers and watering. Okay, great. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and they would have, you know, they'd have known immediately that it was a disposition effect. But the much more subtle one is, is the endowment effect. And, and basically what this is about is about essentially valuing very highly what you own and what's already in the portfolio. And valuing less highly and disregarding alternatives that actually might be similar but represent better value so getting somebody to you know think well actually you know you've got this position and that maybe there's an alternative where you could you know has the same upside but you know but and why um, do we why do we do that why do we think like that well, that's, you know, I think that's because we're hardwired as human beings and we have foibles and, you know, and it's both the, the, the good side of it. Well, in this case, the sort of rather unfortunate side of being human beings. But, you know, the, the other side is that we are creative, imaginative, 
individuals with inherent skills and therefore you know no one's perfect it's just that it's just rather amusing to think that 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 a lot of the stories that i was hearing and probably ones well no probably certainly the ones i gave myself when i was in their shoes you know with things that you know that basically cropped up in the literature so that's what really piqued my interest so interesting and uh, can we talk then about the how behavioral finance has evolved so where do, where what are the origins i mean i'm reading about the, some of the work in the 70s and 80s but you know where did how did that evolve and what was the tipping point well i mean the reason why it evolved is because people recognized that efficient market hypothesis was complete bunk <laughs> and and that and that i suppose the reality is that is that we were looking for something as an alternative and of course you know this chap simon he was writing in the sort of 60s who was trying to sort of you know say that that it didn't work and that there were bubbles and then and and it was at the time it was just regarded as a complete outlier and an out- utterly outrageous idea and then of course people started to sort of take note and and the the real or so the answer to the question is the real origins of behavioral finance in my opinion was really an attempt to be as to provide an alternative hypothesis to the uh, efficient market hypothesis because because we desperately need it because it really that, that doesn't work and um and yet people clung to it with such determination well they do they do you know anchoring and all the other behavioral things that people talk about and but anybody i mean i started work you know rather sort of sadly in september 1979 so i've been going more than 40 years and i can tell you you know i lived through the extraordinary party days of the early 80s then the inevitable hangover in the 87 crash <laughs> and then a couple of other crashes in between like lccm and russia and bloody blah, blah and then of course there was the fabulous boom the tech boom and then the bust and then the financial boom the financial bust and now we've got you know another tech boom and another tech bust and anybody who thinks that the market is efficient at any point in time that it's not subject to bubbles and extreme um, swings in 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 emotions it's just deluded and um so therefore you know efficient market hypothesis may be true for all points in the entire history of the globe for all asset classes but i mean day to day it's just completely useless so so Uh, you know having lived through all of these ups and downs it's quite clear that that the market needed something else to sort of try and explain this this extraordinary volatility that we've been living through and it's interesting because when you started analytics um back in 1998 we were on the cusp of an, another boom bust moment in the tech industry and at that point what did people think of behavioral finance was it on people's radars at that point no no one really thought about it at the time no goodness me i mean i i i don't think anybody really you know because i mean at the time there was only two serious papers um um written at the time um cardamon and travesky mm-hmm. i think that's how you pronounce it and you know the prospect theory Well, I mean, the prospect theory is just an interesting idea, but I don't know what you're supposed to do with it. Can you tell us a little bit about prospect? Well, it's just it, you know, it's just underweighting outcomes that would be you know the the probability determined and overrate and over overweighting sort of known certainties, and that people you know we live in an un, uncertain world, and yet people will anchor on known 
complete certainties rather than think about the possibility that something actually might be a lot better. Um, but I mean, it's difficult to know what you would do with that. So, you know, in 79, it was, it, it, you could see how the literature was beginning to evolve and it was really interesting. Um, but it was just interesting. Um, and then, of course, you know, in, and then in, in 2003, it really got going with, you know, three or four people in, you know, particularly still, a, you know, Barbera and Thaler and, and Richter. And, and they just sort of got going. And then, and then we then started to see, you know, a body of work that was sort of coming together that was trying to explain decisions and, you know, and as I mentioned, you know, we had the disposition effect. And, and I think that is a real phenomenon. There's no question. I mean, you know, we now analyze well over a thousand portfolios. We've got trillions of dollars of trades and, you know, millions of individual trades. And I can tell you, we see it all the time. I mean, just all the time. So there we are 20 years later, and it's really made no difference. And, and you know, and I suppose, you know, personally, you know, with our selling fast buying slow paper, which has now been accepted by the Journal of Finance, it's still true. You know, so, I mean, you know, the literature on the disposition effect in particular is, is very strong and, and the evidence is very strong. But see, that brings up an interesting question. So if you know there's a disposition effect and you're mindful of it, then, and, you're, and, and yet it's still prevalent in our industry, then what does that mean for practitioners? I mean, that's a really good question. Is that how do human beings learn? Um, and I think that, that I think that is a really important topic in itself. And, you know, I mean, I can only hypothesize here, you know, in, in the sense that I would like to believe that people see the evidence and then the light bulb goes off on or off or whatever on. And then, you know, you think, ah, yes, I've seen the light. I'm now going to change my behavior. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, you know, you, all you've got to do is think about the, the, um, the literature, you know, all the academic evidence around cancer and smoking. You know, which which you know, which came out in the forties, the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, the nineties. People smoked for fifty, sixty years. How long has it taken them to stop? You know, and 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 you know, so therefore if something as fundamental as key, you know, that some doing something as fundamental that would actually kill you. Yeah. If all the evidence is yeah. doesn't change your behavior, then goodness knows what just, you know, selling some stocks in the portfolio. You know, I mean, I mean, we've got to be realistic here that, that, that there are only certain things that, you know, people take on board. But I mean, it's a really important question. And I think it's way beyond my comprehension. And if you use the example of smoking, it's, yeah, I think it's something that we just don't really understand yet. But I'm sure we will because our land, the smoking landscape has changed. I mean, arguably there's the vaping issue now, but, but you know, we don't smoke indoors. We don't have to sit on airplanes. I, I remember going on, on flights where there was the smoking sections and, and you were kind of coughing in this because you're right in front of it or whatever. Um, but um, now um, people don't do that, right? So behaviors slow, very, as you said, very, very slowly, very, very gradually have changed. I, I think that's right. And, and um, I would like to think that, that one of the real reasons why people haven't done it before is because they haven't been confronted with the evidence. Right. So, so I, you know, so, I mean, I can give you an example of where behavior absolutely changed. And um, um, so one of our clients, um, we did it and we showed them, the, you know, the folly of, of selling their winners. And they completely changed the way they, they sold stocks. 
And what they and but it was really draconian because what they did was they said, right, if any PM wants wants to, to sell any stock whatsoever, they have to make a written investment case which goes to the investment committee and it has to be signed off. Needless to say, only a fraction of stocks were ever sold, and when they were sold, they got it right. So it is absolutely possible to do this, but it really takes a huge effort. I mean, it, you know, it's almost cold turkey. And um, uh, but I mean, it's a really good question because you know we don't see many examples of it, but when we do see examples of it, where people have really taken it on board and have done something in this case dramatic, it actually has worked. Interesting. You know, another one where we were showing that just not the same thing, but you know, where where we were showing someone that that their, their sizing decisions just weren't working and they were losing money through poor portfolio construction. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. So they just went to an equally weighted portfolio. But they are really rare instances where someone fundamentally changes their behaviour and goes cold turkey. Well, it'll be interesting to see if we were having this conversation in a few years' time, Rick, and a few years even after that to see, you know, where where we land. But um, obviously, this 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 whole space has evolved so dramatically since the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and and now we've seen you know, tremendous research and thought and insight and technology um, playing its part, whether it's artificial intelligence or fintechs or machine learning. Can you speak a little bit about that and how that evolution has, uh, has occurred and how technology has played a part? Yeah, I'll start by going back to the literature, if that's okay. Sure. So there was a, there was a review that was put together in 2019 where they, they analyzed all the, the major papers that had been cited, you know, with citations and it were regarded as, as leading papers in, in behavioral finance, of which there was, I think from memory, there was 48, of which 85% of them were what, they, what the academics call exploratory. And what that means is that they're interested in ideas, but they haven't got any proof <laughs> in my rather unkind language. Um, and that there was only 10% of them that were actually based on evidence. And that was obviously before our Selling Fast, Buying Slow paper came out. Um, but so the, the, the real, the thing which is holding it back, and your question was about the future. And the reason why I've started there is because the thing which is changing so even the world of academic, you know, the academics didn't have the data to validate their thoughts. So now what's happening is that people like us do have the data and we are, we are publishing research on, on this stuff. And, and I think that particularly in finance, I think people do want to see the evidence. So I, I think the, the big shift is the fact that that because we have this huge data set, which you know, my co-author at Chicago Booth called the world's largest um, database of decisions that exists, you know, is that, is that we are able to publish this information and we are able to sort of, you know, to talk about these subjects with real authority because, because we can talk about it in terms of numbers. And I think that, and of course, that wouldn't have happened without technology. Um, yeah. I mean, there are some, you know, there are some jokey elements about technology, such, you know, I mean, some of the early stuff in neurofinance where uh, neurology or whatever it is, it's called, you know, we're basically sit tinfoil on people's heads with probes, you know, and just like, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of comical, really. Um, the, the, so, so you can take the technology too far, but I mean, but I think that, that, that ultimately where technology does have a role to play is in actually assembling large 
data sets and using that data set to, to actually provide objective feedback back to the back to the users to say, yeah. well, look, you know, here are your numbers. And these are the, you know, these are the possibilities that you could have if you actually change your behavior. And I think that's, you know, that's what's really, I think that's the thing that's now going to change. And, and I think the other thing that's changed is the fact that, that in our day-to-day lives, technology now plays an absolutely fundamental role. I mean, when you almost think back to pre-COVID or 10 years ago. I mean, you know, you can't imagine what it was like then. But now technology is all pervasive. It's in every aspect of our lives. And in particular, data. I mean, you know, anybody who goes on the internet and they know what they're collecting on you knows that in their private lives, what the, you know, what data means. And, and, and I think there is now a much greater willingness and acceptance of the role of data and the power of data that it can actually influence decision making. Whereas I think five years ago or 10 years ago, that just would never have been accepted as a, as a thing. Now, there's, I don't think anybody there's another, would. There's another um, interesting point there though then, because data is so prevalent and pervasive, but it's also, there's so much of it. You still have so to much. distill and make and contextualize. I think that's, that's absolutely 100% correct. I actually think data in itself is completely redundant and that data only becomes information when it's delivered in a way that is actionable. But and what by that, what I actually mean is in a way that actually the person who is receiving it can actually understand it and relate it to themselves. So I think data in itself is not that interesting it's only when it becomes information and, and the process of it becoming information is that you run the numbers. And the thing, you know, the thing that's really important is that, is that the numbers don't give you the answer. They give you the questions to ask yourself. And then it's through that process of asking questions, thinking about what the answer might be and then applying them in practice. And I think there is just far too much um, bunk and overselling as as data is the answer. Data isn't the answer. Basically, it only becomes the answer if it's translated into information, and it only becomes information if it represents a set of questions which you address to yourself and think and think for yourself as to what the answer is. And I think that that uh, you know, I would hope that that's what we do um, because you know, data in itself. What do you do with it? You know, and unless it's packaged in a way which is which is relevant and actionable, it's a waste of time. So, I mean, so what are the questions we're going to be asking ourselves in a decade's time? I mean, how do you see this evolving, whether through the technology we have yeah. or the sheer amounts of data we have? You know, where is this going? Well, I think I think I think there are a number of dynamics here. I think I think we should think about we should think about the industry as both the managers, you know, managers. PMs, people who are managing money, and their clients. And I think there are two different constituencies here with different outcomes, um, related but different. So on the, on the manager side, this genie is out the bottle. There's no question. I mean, you, you know, I mean you know, we've got clients in 14 countries. It's, it's out the bottle. So people are now want the information and they're now much more readily acceptable, accepting of the idea that it, data can help or information can help. And that will only continue as the sophistication of the analysis increases. And I know from our own experience, who look back on what we were doing five years ago, it's almost unrecognizable compared to what we do now. Right. You know, we now analyze hundreds of different types of decisions. And, 
you know, real, um, you know, in real, in a really granular way. Um, and therefore that, and that is only just going to increase. So the level of sophistication of the analytics is on an upward curve and there's no, no sign of it slowing down, but also the fact that, so that's on, you know, in the sense of the, the generating it, but, but in terms of the recipients, I think there's a generational thing where, where the younger PMs come through. They're, they're going to expect to feed these tools. And it was the same in, it was the same in sport, that the, as, as the youth were coming through the academies and things, were much more familiar with, with how, their, you know, how, how their game was being analysed. They expected to see it, whereas the old laggards, you know, the old boys just didn't. And, and I think that a lot of the developments in sport is also a generational thing and i think that's what's going to happen here as well that that not only will the technology uh, continue to become much much more sophisticated but also i think that that the industry's appetite for absorbing it and using it um is also increasing exponentially as well but then you know just as importantly we shouldn't forget that their clients are becoming much more sophisticated in the way that they analyze managers. So, you know, we apply data science when we're doing searches all the time now. And, you know, and I can tell you that, you know, our clients will know more about the raft of managers who are pitching for the business sometimes than they know themselves. And, you know, and, and, in, and in the same way as with sport, they, you know, people use data to, for scouting and for recruiting um, people. That's what's going to happen here. Is that people are going to? Uh, is there's no question. The sophisticated asset owners and allocators are going to expect to see um, a detailed empirical analysis of the investment skills and decisions of the PMs they're going to appoint. And so, so the actual the actual marketplace, as it were, uh, from both sides of the fence, is actually increasing. And um, and and in ten years' time, I think it will. It, that will have the same roots, but it will look completely different. There's no question it will look completely different. And, and, and I would like to think that on the allocator side, that, you know, that, that, that actually an appointment of the manager is done in a fully informed way and that they really understand what they're paying for in terms of the fees because they'll have done the analysis or they've had the analysis done for them. And I think that, that people think about this as, a, as, a, you know, as an investment portfolio management issue. It, it's just as important from their client side. And that's, and, and once again, um, you know, both of them are you know, on a curve and, and, and it's not going back. I, it's the, this genie's not out, but neither of these genies are going back in their bottles. That's amazing. And, and actually takes us back to that question about disposition effect and lessons learned because your analogy or sporting analogy, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if you're I'm a tennis player and everything is being measured, the quality of my, my serve, the power of my hit, whatever it is, um, then of course I'm going to start thinking about improving those things just by virtue of the fact that every RFP is going to be discussing them. Yeah. Um, and, I'm, and I'm going to have to, like, it's not going to be a, a choice anymore or, or even something I can ignore. Uh, that, that, that's right. And, and, and I think that the old days of, you know, trust me, I'm a fun manager. I got a smart suit and went to great schools. I think those days have gone is that now people, I think the fund managers will need to demonstrate that they do what they say they do and demonstrate that they're good at it. And I think that, that that's, you know, that's not going back. Um, 
And, and to use your analogy of the tennis, I mean, you know, they come off the courts at Wimbledon and they go to the training, they go to the training courts and there is a pile of sheaves of paper analyzing every, every single shot they made. I mean, you know, they don't go to the bar, they go to the training court. Yeah. And they look at they look at the data. I mean, it's it's amazing how it's changed. I have one more question for you, Rick. Come on. Um, are there some part, parts of our behavior that we simply can't measure? Yes. Yes, undoubtedly, the bits which make us human beings, and the the creativity, and the flexibility, and. The joy of being a human being can never be replicated. People, people try to replicate decision-making and fund managers. What a completely futile exercise that is. I mean, yeah, I mean it'd, be like, it'd be like trying to replicate an artist and yeah. try and say, okay, well, you know, they put, they put that pixel of paint on that dot there, so they must be, you know, it's nonsense. Now, the, the long may it be true that we're human beings, we're creative and um, individuals with our own quirks and um and i think you know long may that be true i i totally agree with you and i hope so rick long may it be true yeah. well thank you so much rick it's been a really useful and insightful discussion really appreciate having you and thank you everyone for listening remember to please look out for the next episode of our in conversation podcast through the usual cfa uk email and social media channels you can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel and Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maha.